Howdy, welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of interviewing a coworker of mine named Brian Marr. He is one of our senior editors here at Canon, and we talked about the Canon Press team's recent effort at the Modernized Geneva Bible, which if you haven't heard, you can find at modernizedgenevabible.com. You can find that link in the description. The Geneva Bible was the translation during Christian persecutions of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Soldiers in Cromwell's army carried these into battle. It gave men and women courage in the gospel. It was the first English Bible mass-produced for daily reading at home and was designed to help ordinary Christians understand even the hard texts in Scripture. Discover the Bible of the Reformation in easy-to-read volumes. I highly recommend the modernized Geneva Bible. So far, we've completed the New Testament and the Old Testament is on its way, so stay tuned for that. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brian Marr. All right, now welcoming on special guest, the senior editor of Canon Press, my friend, Brian Marr. Brian, welcome to Canon Calls. Thank you. This is exciting. I've th- Am I the last person or there's lots of other people that we still have to interview? Um, Just in-house? Yeah. We have done a lot of people in-house. We've done a lot. Uh, we haven't done several. Have you ever done Aaron Wrench? I would love to. That would be great. Uh, Aaron Wrench promised me that he would never do another podcast until he did mine to make me feel better about saying no. So. Who knows when he'll be on, but really excited to have you on. You've always been very kind about the interviews. As I said, Brian is senior editor, which means, uh, so I, I get the opportunity to work with Brian on the editorial team, editorial meetings, and we talk about, uh, well, actually you tell us what you do. I'm not going to try to do it. Yeah. The nice thing about working at a small publisher like Canon Press is that you really get to uh, just do a lot of different things. I think that I imagine I've talked to people who edit for other publishers like Baker and they tend to be more like they've got one thing, they do it really, really well. Okay. Whereas the wonderful thing about my job is that I can do many, many, many different things in any given day. So I've written curriculum for Canon Press. I've done, I've created many different products I feel for Canon Press. But uh, I suppose the bulk of what I do is some sort of uh, criticism of people's writing, which that's always been something that I just loved. Yep. Not criticizing people necessarily, but just being able to, you know, make something really better, make something that takes something from good to great kind of thing. Yeah. So, t- okay. Tell me a little bit about that. Like when I, I think when people hear that you're an editor or that you're editing, they think in terms of maybe like grammar stuff, mm-hmm. but you said you, you're interested in taking manuscripts. I assume you don't mean grammatically. Yeah. What do you, what other, what other kind of editing is there and, and how much of that do you do? That's a good question. It's one that I answer actually a lot when people ask me about my job. And I always say that there's kind of three stages to being an editor in, in my process, at least that, the way I think of it. And the first and most fun process is really content criticism. So uh, the two big things that I often see if a book comes to Canon Press and I'm sitting down with it and I'm looking at it, the two big things are content and uh, the structure. So is this a compelling point? So we, you know, if we have a book by Douglas Wilson or Sierra Wiley or whoever it is that we're editing, we're going to ask, okay, did he make a compelling point? 
Was he clear in what he said or does he need to expand it? And is this falling in an intuitive order that an average reader who isn't necessarily initiated to what the author is saying, doesn't know all the terms, maybe can grab on and not be distracted? Because that's that's what I think, think a lot of, especially with someone like Doug, if you're editing someone like Douglas Wilson, you're really just trying to get rid of distracting things that uh, a joke that m- maybe someone just doesn't have the information for. Sure. So you're just cleaning up stuff. Yeah. You're making it, you know, it should be a breeze for the reader to get through. So. A lot of that counts on good writing from authors, but also means good editors. Mm-hmm. And there's two other stages that then come after that. So the first stage is content editing, which is the funnest. Those are the okay, you ones enjoy that, that one remember. the most? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the next two are style. So making sure that the sentences are clean, that yeah. they're somewhat grammatically correct, you know, at Lord willing, all grammatically correct. Yeah. And then the third stage is just proofs, which is something that as the editor, you have to manage, you are responsible for the errors in the book. And in some respect, the author, you know, often takes credit for the errors in the book. You know, if you're at the beginning of the book, he'll say, you know, all the errors, you know, you'll have the acknowledgments. They're like, hey, you know, I got this and this from all these wise guys, but yeah. hey, all the errors that are here are mine. And the editor is supposed to get rid of uh, typos, get rid of as many as you possibly can. And that's where you hire it out, hire it to someone who's really fast and can, you know, just take out all those commas in the wrong place, get rid of all those little typos. That's what the third stage is. Yep. So what most people have in mind when it comes to editing, we actually don't even do underneath the roof at Canon, usually, mm-hmm. is what yeah. I've found. That was a surprise to me, at least. Awesome. So you mentioned that you've been a part of a ton of different things. One of the things that you were a part of is the Modernized Geneva Bible, which is a really successful product that came out of Canon. It's sort of had its own lane. So I know Canon's done some, uh, we've done marketing for it, but it really does feel like it's its own epic thing over there. You know, that people would, maybe people know about the modernized Geneva Bible, but they they wouldn't necessarily draw a straight line from it to Canon. What, so it's, it's qualified, the Geneva Bible is qualified with modernized. Can you, before we get to modernized, can you just tell us about the Geneva Bible? Yeah, it's a cool story. I've already told this elsewhere, but I think it'll be great for anyone who doesn't know about this. So famously, William Tyndale is the first guy who illegally translates the Bible into English or as much of it as he can get into English. Okay. So he's, he's in England. He's like, you know, there's this do down with this priest where he's like, Tyndale's trying to refute him by scripture. And the guy's like, no way. And he's like, you know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, the plow boy knows more than you. And so he, he translates all the new Testament. He translates the Pentateuch. Then he this is an interesting twist that I didn't know about until recently. He flees to Europe from England. Henry VIII is trying to kill him. And then Henry VIII tries to get him ransomed when he gets caught because he somehow he did an about face and actually liked Tyndale. Okay. I don't know how that happens. But yeah. he does that. And, but Tyndale's burned at the stake. His last prayer is that God would open the eyes of the king. And it works. Well, you know, it seems to have worked because Henry VIII of course, he divorces his first wife, starts the Protestant Reformation in England, and then one of uh, Tyndale's friends, I just found this out too, uh, takes Tyndale's Bible and puts it into the first English Great Bible. Uh, I think it's Miles Coversdale who does that one. Yeah, Miles Coversdale. Yeah, right. So he does. He does that. He takes Tyndale's, and he, you know, there's this gr- these great big Bibles that are in churches, and I think there's later on uh, Edward the Sixth has a few in there. The, the Bible gets starts to get disseminated. But it's not very good. And it's, you know, your first shot at it. You're going to have lots of mistakes, lots of things that are confusing. 
And well, the cool thing is that, so Henry VIII, as everyone knows, he divorces his first wife. His first wife has a daughter, Mary, and she somehow ends up on the throne of England. And she somehow. starts persecuting uh, Protestants. Yeah. And this is an interesting thing too. It seems like she saved the Protestant Reformation. We often think that, oh, the Reformation almost died in England, but actually uh, the Reformation was happening too fast in England. Okay. And so they were like going full forward Protestant and some of the English were like, eh, we're not sure about this. And then when they saw the Catholics persecuting their own people and burning just many people at the stake, they became devoutly Protestant. So when you say it was happening too quickly, are you saying they were pushing Protestantism into corners like before it was ready, essentially before, yeah. ma- you know, maturity had come? Does that mean like into... Too much iconoclasm, too much making, you know, getting rid of the religion in the, in the way that the peasants couldn't grab onto it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I, th- and this is the same Mary that is Bloody Mary, I assume. Yep. So, and you said she kind of, in a sort of backhanded way, helps the Reformation along by sort of stopping it, yeah. but keeping it going at the same time. Persecuting, like persecuting Protestants and letting them see their bishops die. Like if we, if you think about our elites, we would never see our elites dying at the stake. And we would I admire them a little bit more if they actually were willing to die or sacrifice anything for their beliefs. And so, sure. you know, the bishops, the Protestant bishops did go to their deaths very well. Yep. And, but a few of them escaped. And this is where G- the Geneva Bible does come in. The Geneva Bible is the, is made, written under, in Calvin's Geneva at the sure. time that John Calvin is in charge uh, and is reforming the city. And these English refugees, uh, including Miles Coverdale, say we need a better Bible. And so they create this very usable, user-friendly Bible. Yeah, very small, uh, very portable. You know, the Elizabethans had this in their purses. You could like hide it in their hair, correct? I, I didn't think know I that. Saw, yeah, Ren has a whole thing about like ways they used to like, some, the, something that he had was like, some of it, it was so transportable. Also because it wasn't, you know, kosher to have. Yeah. Easy to hide. And it also had, of course, the famous notes, which are the important okay, yes. key to the story. Yes. Tell us about the notes. So the Geneva Bible translators put in lots of explanatory notes and some maps at the end. So it's kind of your first study Bible, yeah. which, you know, when I heard about it that way, that <laughs> was kind of cool to me. I was like, oh, yeah. that's great. But these notes, unfortunately, for the future of it, for the future of the Bible, had lots of little lines about resisting kings. And so... Given it's... Mm-hmm. context. Yeah, because at the time the Protestant reformers were dealing with Catholic rulers and are you able to revolt? And yep. yeah. Okay, so in terms of that, so were they translating in Geneva with stuff over in England in mind? Is that... Yeah, you okay. had a huge community of Protestant refugees from England. Got it. So Bloody Mary drove a bunch of them out and they're out there uh, having trouble. I think that that's when John Knox is fighting with uh, about what, how much of the Book of Common Prayer can we use is too popish, those kinds of questions. Got it. So Got it. it was an English community. I think John Knox may have even, uh, actually there's no evidence that he was translated it, but he was definitely part of it. He was at, in the area at the time that that was happening. Okay. And so eventually, you know, John Knox and all those people will go back to England after Mary dies and they'll continue the Protestant Reformation. But this is, and you know, maybe they don't know what's going to happen because right. maybe Mary has a child but, you know, they're still worshiping their common tongue. How long did, uh, was Bloody Mary in, in authority? Less than 10 years. Very short. Might even have been five. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So from uh, the Geneva Bible 
disseminated out of Geneva? Yeah. Did it have... It got back into England, too, because when they did come back, the Puritan movement picked it up strongly. Because it it was just the best. Like, it was the most up-to-date scholarship that was out there. So, up-to-date scholarship, and and when you mentioned it was just better, uh, does that mean in terms for them, like, accessibility, readability, those kind of things? That as well. Because they, I think it was the first one that had verses in it. Okay. So, if you're... Trying yep. to find things and trying to, you know, imagine that, that's a really helpful thing to have. Maneuver. And then just a much cleaner font, yep. a much, and then all those notes, you know, what those notes existed for was for people who just did not grow up with the Bible. I mean, you and I kind of know a lot of the Bible stories really intuitively, and we're kind of familiar with it because maybe as a kid we read it. Sure. But they don't have that, and they are trying to figure out, you know, how to think about it. So these notes that are there are partially to help them interact with their own world and their uh, practical application of the Bible. And help them just understand what's going on. Right, right. So this is a world where the majority of the Bibles, they probably had only seen one. It was probably chained to a church. Mm-hmm. And for good reason. I've always, I've always like heard Protestants really rail on that at times, which it's like, hey man, there's only one of them. It's probably worth a lot of money. You can't just have people stealing it. But what a gift to have it be able to be disseminated, have your own clear font, all that stuff. It's really funny as you say that like in that context the things that that are casual conversations that you might hear at can impress about uh formatting all of that kind of stuff was sort of like make or break back then mm-hmm. to some degree or yeah. you know could really change the world to some degree mm-hmm. in that little corner and those are just casual preference conversations that happen in the halls here mm-hmm. there's one more piece yeah please tell me so those notes they say that you can overthrow the king and so the yes. Geneva falls out of favor because King James hates that. There's, if any of your readers are out there, there's a very good documentary with John Rhys Davies about the King James Bible. Okay. Uh, I think it's KJV 400 or something like that, where he basically dramatizes how King James dislikes this Bible and how he basically is, de- how, it's all about how King James is dealing with the Puritans. Okay. And so he disseminates, uh, he, he decides, I, he hates the, great Bible that the Anglican church has that's official. He thinks it's not up to the scholarship of the Geneva, but he hates the notes. So he decides to just update it one more. Okay. And that's, and um, his Bible would probably not have become the Bible of the English speaking world. But what actually happened was that there was a civil war after King James died and the Anglicans, eventually they, the Anglican side won, the Royalist side won. And so that was the Bible they ended up putting in their churches later on and eventually brought to the United States after uh, the Geneva Bible was brought by the Puritans to America. So it is the first American Bible, but uh, the King James just won the royal court. And so that made it win the world. But we could have a very different world that we're in right than we're in right now if things had just gone slightly differently. So now there are just a little bit of when we were really working hard on some marketing ideas for it. You mentioned that it's the first American Bible, correct? Yeah. What other lanes of influence did the Geneva have? Like one that came to mind was, you know, it was most likely the one that whoever Shakespeare is, he used. <laughs> other, did you have any other, are there other lanes of influence or other like trivia? Going through it, I can clu- you can clearly see that John Bunyan used this Bible. There's okay. specific phrases that I remember from Pilgrim's Progress that I'd never seen anywhere else. So that's a cool thing, I think. Very fun. There, I think there was one more that I can't think of, but those are the big ones. 
Bunyan, Shakespeare, mm-hmm. first American Bible. Very, very fun. Okay, so that's how we got to the King James. Now, there's as far as the market for Bibles, before this one, just like as you looked around, are there... It, I don't often run into the Geneva Bible. Do you think there's a reason for that? I think it's because King James won. And it's interesting because it built very well on the scholarship. And so it improved or tweaked a few things. And it's just, you know, it's sort of like your 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 latest iPhone. It's got enough things supposedly that it's better. Yep. Makes sense. Um, okay. So the modernized qualifier. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is where I'd like to talk a little bit about translation, and I'd love to dig in here because I don't, have we ever talked about translation on this show? I don't think so. This will be great, and I've got stuff prepared because I've also gone to school and talked about this stuff. But the first basic thing about the modernized Geneva Bible is that as I was doing this, I was thinking, as I was looking at this and talking to people about this, I was always thinking that, you know, we want to get the Bible into the hands of people, and a lot of the impetus was to get, you know, something that was really readable, really reader friendly. And so we, I wanted, you know, if you want this to be something that people are using, you don't want distractions. And so the Geneva has enough uh, archaic stuff that is very distracting if you're a modern reader. And so I thought, okay, let's clean this up. Uh, And that's what we, what we decided to do. We will just clean this up, take a few little pieces out and just make it something that an average reader can just be reading their Bible with rather than thinking, I am reading Geneva. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. And I think, so the way that it came out, if no one, if you haven't seen the modernized Geneva Bible, I believe the website is modernizedgenevabible.com. Yeah. And some of the ways, so we, we have released the New Testament so far and we released it by individual books. So John is its own little uh, book, Mark, Matthew, etc. And in a lot of ways, I felt like, it shared the sort of same mission and vision that you kind of described. Yeah. The Geneva Bible had there where. That's what I felt. I, and that's why we didn't include the notes because even though it would be kind of nice to have those notes in there, there are other resources that give you those notes. Right. But we really would want, you know, the purpose of the notes was to make the Bible clear. And I think the notes distract more than they help with that. Especially like, you mean like, especially today. Yeah. Where it's like, we wanted to give people something that it really kind of works with, uh, to the the Bible reading challenge and everything else where it's Bible on the run, Bible on the go, just eating and ingesting in your real life, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Okay. So yeah, this isn't, you wouldn't, this wasn't done with a quill. So the Canon Press team essentially just cleaned up the syntax and would you have any like examples of what people might've seen before? Yes. My favorite example is always, you know, in Acts, it says that Paul and his companions trust up their fartles. It's like... Trust up you know, their fartles? Yeah. Do you remember um, To Be or Not To Be? He says, who would fartles bear to grunt and sweat under uh, a yoke? Really? For the fear. Yeah, it's in there. It's in the To Be or Not To Be. Who would burdens bear? Who would to grunt and sweat under a yoke? So we want to... So that kind of thing is really distracting. So we just made it. They packed their, their uh, burdens up. And okay, so, so they packed their burdens up. Yeah. Was... They trust up their fartles. They trust up their fartles. A little distracting. Yeah. Not as clear. And the worst one was that, and I think that it has to do with the Greek, was that the Gospel of John, they would switch the sub, the order of the subject and the verb. And so you would get every single uh, noun, you know, instead of John said, it would be said John. And 
uh, and in very distracting ways. Like there's a way to make said John sound yeah. right, but in the sense would be, you know, just, just craziness. And th the Greek doesn't do that. That's not a good example of uh, equivalent translation. In okay. equivalent translation, what you, the goal is to not follow the order of the words in the Greek, but to follow the sense of the words in the Greek. Right. Okay. So now I imagine you are sympathetic to a certain crowd that would hear modernized and they would flinch a little. Yeah. There are other translations out there that have been, that could have be described as modernized or things like that. How would you dis distinguish what Canon Press has done with the Geneva Bible to something like that, that is worthwhile of a flinch? With, with that's worth the flinch to yes. mean something like the message. Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would distinguish it first just because we're not trying to do what the, say the message does. Just to get that out of the way, it's like that guy <laughs> is like, you know, even when I go through Death Valley, you know, you keep me safe. And it's just, it's it's not a good example of equivalence. Right. Uh, equivalence, j just to be clear, you know, people will talk about literal translations and equivalent translations. And when they're talking about literal, they are trying to think, you know, you're as close to the original as you possibly can in every single word in the same order, maybe, and with brackets around things that aren't there. Right. And you see this sometimes in Bibles where they italicize words that aren't in the original. But then equivalence, equivalence is the idea that you're getting at the sense. You use maybe a bunch of different words, but hopefully it gives you the feel of what it was like to read the original. C.S. Lewis has a great line. He says, he says if he's dealing with an ancient Persian translation or text of some sort, he wants, doesn't want to know how a modern Englishman would read the Persian text. He wants to know how the uh, Persian would speak if he knew English fluently. Good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Really, really Is fun. Is a letter? Uh, it's in the latest book that, that came out by uh, that guy who edits all his stuff that the just Hoover? passed away. Yeah. Walter Hoover? Her, yes. Uh, Images and Imagination. Okay. It's in there. Nice. Okay. So applied to the modernized Geneva Bible, mm -hmm. you're not up to... <laughs> I'm pretty sure I think Psalm 1 says something about you hang out at Sin Saloon. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not into necessarily euphemizing or, you know, finding ways to capture like s trite sayings to some degree. Yeah. The Canon Press team is actually focused on like cleaning up the syntax such that clarity is achieved. Because that's what you see in the original. The original yeah. isn't distracting. It doesn't have this... Because and that's where equivalence comes in. What I see with uh, Eugene Peterson in the message is someone is trying really hard to instead of bringing it to how it felt to read the original, it's you know trying to make the original something different. And what we're trying to do is just get rid of those archaic things because the original Bible is often not archaic compared to if you compare the New Testament Greek to the Greek of the classical authors, it's so much more informal. It's so simple. It's not uh, too high. It's not too low. It's great. Yep. Coin A. Yeah, common. Yep. That's what Koine Greek is common Greek. So common that even Jake passed in school somehow. Awesome. Okay, so Modernized Geneva Bible, we highly recommend it. More and more, more of it's coming. Yeah. We have just wrapped up work on the Old Testament, yes, I believe. Yes, we have. Okay, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. was, there any, was there any really great examples out of the Old Testament? Uh, Anything that comes to mind? I remember having a bunch of difficulties and things I couldn't figure out. One cool thing that will probably be changed as there's, this was something that is interesting about the Hebrew. I remember in Genesis three, it says, you know, the sword is, it's flaming, but it, or it could be translated as turning every which way. And, you know, or the, there's an angel and there's a sword that's turning every which way. And it doesn't say that the angel has a sword. 
Sure. It's just like this sword that's kind of going every which way. And I just never <laughs> noticed that before. And I think, I don't know how we're going to modernize that, but there'll probably be some way to make that. It might even survive. It might even survive into it. We'll see. That's awesome. So modernizedgenevabible.com. Old Testament is on the way. What other things, Bimar? What other things are you up to? Uh, right now, we're working on, I'm working on a Latin textbook behind the scenes. So okay. that's out there. That's really exciting to have that. We've got some of the books I'm excited about. We're working with Sarah Wiley. I'm okay. very, very excited about him continuing to work with us because I think that he's, he's into some of the exciting aspects of theology and culture and the ways they intersect. I am yep. super stoked about that. So as senior editor, all the people that you've edited at Canon, who and what is a project you've enjoyed the most? There's different answers to that. My favorite would be Psalms for Trials, actually, which okay. is shocking, but that one just hit me at a perfect time in my life because there was that, at that time, I was just going through some challenging things and I never really grew up praying, but that book made me want to pray. So that's the one that's had the biggest impact. Psalms for Trials, Psalms by, for Lindsay Trials by Lindsay Tolfson. Uh, it's by Dr. Lethart's daughter. It's just fantastic. And you know, that's the one that I've recommended to my sisters. I recommend it to other people. That's the one that's had the biggest impact on me. Other than that, uh, the one I'm sort of proudest of in a way is When the Man Comes Around, because I came up with the title for that. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> tremendous. I think, helped it. Yeah. That was tremendous work from BMAR. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for Doug on some of the things he's done for us and the way he acts. Because he's funny because he's, you know, you don't think about how these things go on the back end. But Doug is great because you send him stuff and either he's like, Stet, <laughs> and I'm not going to change it. Or he'll write a whole thing based on what you have to say. It's sort of like, no or yes, I'm going to write a bunch of things and add a little bit. And it's just cool to see him just go for it, you know? He's never sort of thrown you in a dungeon and... and lit it on fire no. as a monster might. Yeah. Okay. So I'm- uh, I read online that could be the case. But then the ones that are are really exciting uh, coming up will be Sarah Wiley and Michael Foster. Those are the okay. two names that I think of in terms of these are people, those are some of the projects that I'm most excited about for what they could mean for theology and for, you know, the current theological cultural scene even. Yeah. So I'm excited so about their that's, work. That would be uh, Wiley's Bombadil. Yeah. Should be out this year, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I hope this year, we will see Michael Foster. It, it's going to come out very, very soon. Uh, we just finished uh, doing the citations for it. So awesome. It's so the way Michael it's Foster and non-tenant. Yes. Uh, I believe it's good to be a man. Yes. With a subtitle that's remained to be seen. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really exciting. Yes. Both projects I also got to help with, which is great. Yeah. Okay. Bimar, why are you at Canon? Well, the cool story is that years ago, after a disputatio, and a disputatio, for those who don't know, is um, an event at NSA. They'd have it every week where the, the whole school gathers, gathers together, gets into an assembly, and just go, has a talk of some sort. And, you know, if there's any big announcements for the student body at New St. Andrews College, then they make them there. Okay. And 10 years ago, no, uh, not, yeah, 10 years ago now. 2021. 20, uh, so it's 2021 now, and it was 2011 back then. Okay. I was at a disputatio, and I'd never had a job before. I'd had one internship, but I had sort of gone through the first year at the college, and I was looking for something else to do with my time other than school, because I'm kind of a workaholic person who just loves to dive into things. And so I was like, okay, I need to balance out a little bit what's out there for me, especially since I was out, out of town at the time. So I, finding a job was a slightly more difficult, maybe. And uh, the current president, Ben Merkel, said, by the way, if anyone wants to volunteer 
these are the places you can go to. So the Hope Center was a place you could volunteer at, you know, all these different spots, the church office. And they said, oh, and by the way, Canon Press can always use free labor. So I just went in and said to Aaron, hey, can you use free labor? And they're like, yes. And not only that, but we've got our sermon audio editor uh, is leaving to be a pastor. Can you do that? And I was like, great. I've grown up listening to Doug Wilson's uh, sermons. That's my background. So I, it was really exciting to be able to do that job for a long time, you know, after listening to it for so long. And then a few months later, they said, oh, we're going to start paying you. And I was like, whoa, you know, this is the first time I've been paid. <laughs> and so I did that for several years and I kept doing that for many, many years. And then eventually they just sort of started giving me more tasks and more assignments. They really liked it. They, uh, and they eventually gave me things to edit. And I love writing. I've always loved writing since I was a kid. And uh, yeah, that's. And that's basically why I'm here in the sense that I love writing it and I love to do a lot of different things. And Canon Press gives me a lot of room to do a lot of different things. You know, you got your theology books and you've got your culture books. And I just love that we're not going to give into nonsense, honestly. Like at this point, you know, you would think that the reformed world would have been like solid and would have weathered the tides of liberalism and of wokeness. And you would have been able to speak straight talk, but that's just not how it's happened in the last couple of, it seems like months, but it's really been going on for a long Years, time. Yeah. So that's, those, are some of the, those are some of the big reasons why I still am here. So with uh, publish, publishers are not often things people consider. Usually everybody's very hot on books and other things like that. How do you see Canon, and maybe you've gotten into it a little bit, but how do you see Canon distinguishing, distinct from other publishers? Are we very similar, un, not very similar? We're not similar. Okay. Because, well, for one thing, we never, the cool thing is that we started as a charity in a lot of ways. So uh, the church office was funding us for a long time. And there's always been this kind of uh, missionary feel to the publishing company. And I know that there are a lot of publishing companies that also have that attitude. But then I suppose the other factor you have to take in is Douglas Wilson, how he led the, how he kind of wrote and how he's kind of just managed his online uh, persona for the last since 1991, basically, and maybe bef and even before that in smaller venues, but not he wasn't writing until he was 39. So that that is, I think, the biggest change difference is there's and there's something interesting. Doug talked about this, this on your show a while ago, where he said, you know, people can't understand how it is. They don't have the they don't get the tune to what's going on in our community. I think you said something like they've got all the words, but not the tune. Mm -hmm. Uh, meaning, you know, there's something they're missing this, uh, sort of the spirit, the spirit, you know, the, the spirit of love that pervades, you know, Doug and his family. But basically with, with Doug, he kind of got his own house in order and then he started writing and he could see miles and miles before things would go wrong, the ways in which, uh, the suits and the haircuts come where it's like, you know, we have currently, evangelicalism has a way of making everything safe. And Doug doesn't want to be safe because that's just, you know, it's not challenging that way. And so I think that's, and, and he, and he could see how, well, I think we've talked about this behind the scenes. When you have even Ed, Edwin Freeman's, um, his own work, where he talks about how you have, if you have a group and you have a mature person at one end of the spectrum, kind of, and you have an immature person, if the immature person dominates the scene, then the group will become more immature collectively. And what Doug recognizes, I think, is that the world 
The way the publishing world works is that if you offend someone, it's very easy for that person in our current money-making economy for that person to dominate. And so all it takes is one negative, you know, media, social media attack. And then that publisher is either going to pull the book or the author has to kowtow. And, you know, Doug sees that dynamic and has always been careful to walk the careful balance of, you know, being an inside in a church and in an accountable community, but also not being accountable to the screechers. And that's, that, and that is what allows the community to remain as loving as it is and to have as much ministry as it is. Because, you know, if you're, you know, and part of it is that if you don't, you know, you see this a little bit with Rachel, if you see the videos, you see the love that she has for her kids and her family, and you see, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways, because there's right. just so many people here who, you know, you're not going to go to church and get the same blog feel, you're going to get a very different feel. And that's because there's a time and a place for everything. There's a public sphere where, and, and you know, you need to have the hard word in the private sphere too. But there's a place in the public sphere for talking about the just horrible things that are happening and a place in the background for having things good. Sorry, that's a kind of long no, rabbit trail. How did we, how did we get here? It's great. So uh, in terms of what you thought makes Canon how does Canon yeah, differentiate that's great, itself? Yeah, it's from, just, from we're not going to put up with nonsense. Like, that's just all it is. Like, we're not going to, we, Doug doesn't go off on fads. I mean, the slow way in which, and you see this also in how he just sort of slowly moved to Calvinism. Like, it took him 20 years to go from being a Calvinist to a, a paedo-baptist. It took a long time to figure it out. Yeah, and I think it shows. I recently, so part of the, part of the show is that I am, active in what's new and what's out from other publishers, whether it's Baker or Macmillan or Whippenstock and the rest. So I get a ton of emails about here's what's coming out. Does anybody want any books kind of thing? And it's the stuff that comes out is crazy. Yeah. Um, And I do think there's a sense in which there are other publishers where we just publish what we think will sell kind of thing. And then I've always found Canon to be unique in what I originally fell in love with when I was in college was I always wanted to know, oh, I wonder what Canon would think of like this topic. There's a sort of company line um, that I don't think is strict or stringent, but but you can at least expect there's a certain kind of air or spirit to it that when I go to Crossway, it's I'm, I could find three books at Crossway that have three different takes. And that's not bad that's not yeah because then you get some really really amazing books out there i I agree we don't sure i mean canon is not the one that published friedman failure correct correct we there are really really fantastic books out there but they're individuals they're not part of a program right that yeah so it's not that uh i was not setting us up for um how are we better than everybody else but at least it's a distinctive flavor and i think it's a it's a sweet way to differentiate yourself Mm -hmm. but uh of course which i interview a ton of people mainly from other publishers. Yeah, and good work is happening elsewhere. I kind of, I suppose one other thing I'll add is that this is kind of my family in a sense, in the sense that uh, my mother was mentored by Jim Wilson. So that's kind of just in my family, that's kind of the stream in which I came in. And I don't want to make, I don't want to come across as though uh, all other publishers everywhere are falling apart, although a lot of that's happening. There's, there's There's good pastors and, you know, everywhere. It's amazing how much America has these faithful pastors, which, you know, if you set that against all the craziness that's happening. The loudest people are often the craziest. Agreed. Agreed. All right, Bmar. Thanks so much. Yeah. Appreciate you.